Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, please don't leave without one. If you don't, we have Bibles to give you. And you'll also find the words uh, that I'm going to preach on printed in your order of worship. So you'll be able to write on that or keep it along uh, with you for the ride. Uh, so we've been talking about in John's uh, prologue, if you will, or the, uh, the beginning of this gospel that he's writing. A gospel is simply a proclamation of good news. And so there are several chapters in this that we have divided up for us here looking at this. But essentially, the reason why we're going through it is because it's asking the most important question in the history of the world. Who is Jesus Christ? It's the most important question in the history of the world because he's the most significant man that has ever lived. And whether or not you believe his claims or not, it's hard not to realize that. That he is the most significant man who ever lived. And so if you're going to be a responsibly intellectual person in the slightest, you've got to ask this question. Who is Jesus Christ and how am I going to deal with it? And John's Gospel specifically uh, deals with that question in perhaps the most comprehensive way of anyone who's ever written. And he writes not as a cold autobiographer, but as someone who knew and touched and loved and watched Jesus Christ. In fact, it, it would be uh, easy to say that he was Jesus' best friend. Uh, he's the one, he calls himself the one who Jesus loves. So he's a trusted resource and suffered so much. And people don't suffer for things they don't believe in. They may suffer for things that are not true, but they believe they're true, right? And so John is writing these things as someone who, as a, as a witness, okay? So we sang just a minute ago that um, Jesus is worthy of every song we could ever sing, and worthy of all the praise we could ever bring, and worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. And then we said that I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation, and I will put my trust in you, and I will not be shaken. And the question I want to ask you is, why? Why? Why should we build our life upon Christ? The last song and this chapter that we sang answers that question. Because before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. I have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever pleads for me. One with himself, I cannot die. Why? Because my soul is purchased by his blood. Now, how does that work? How does that work? Why do we need blood? Why do we need Jesus' blood? Why not someone else's? The title of the sermon today is The Glorious God-Man. The Glorious God-Man. We're going to be talking about these two natures of Christ. John writes this entire book, and specifically this prologue, which has all of the major themes that he's going to write in the whole, all the chapters. And in ch chapter 20 and verse 30, he writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. All right, So there's a lot of other stuff that Jesus did, I didn't write down. Then in verse 31 he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Just a review, just for a second, so that... We catch us up to speak because we're really just going to focus on one verse this morning, okay? 
chapters one, verses one through thirteen, we hear that Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos, Greek concept, the meaning of life. For the Jewish mind, the Word is what God used to create everything. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Clear statement. Jesus is God. Clear statement. Can't confuse it at all. Jesus is the Word. It also says that He's the light of men. He's the way of salvation. Not a way of salvation, but the way of salvation. He is the light. And that in verses 12 and 13, that if you receive this gift of life by faith, and who Jesus was... You, I say it again, if you receive the gift of life in what? In who Jesus actually was, the God-man, that you'd be welcomed into the family of God. And then this beautiful beginning wraps up in this chapter. And John is writing to his audience, not simply proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the awaited one who's going to save us all from our biggest problems, He's writing to inform them of what the Messiah should actually be like and what he should do. And so the question I ask you this morning is, do you know the answer to that question? What kind of Messiah, what kind of hero do you need? As a church, one of the things that we want to have is we want to have a great love for each other, deep fellowship. We want to have a love uh, for those outside the church as well, those who need our help uh, physically, emotionally, relationally. But one of the best ways that we can love them is by sharing this news, that in Jesus Christ, we don't want to simply love them with our deeds, though we do, but bringing them that there is news, that there is someone can, that can save their soul from hell and give them eternal life. We talk about that all the time, but here's the problem. We need to know why Jesus saves us from hell. So let's go through a couple scenarios before we get to John chapter 1. Let's say that we're in the conversation with, uh, with someone and we're having a great conversation. They're being kind, we're being kind. It's a conversation. Talking about religion. You know, it's tough to do that these days, we feel like, isn't it? But it's totally possible. It happens to me all the time. Just they're kind, I'm kind, we're talking, and say we're in the middle of this, someone from work that we know, and we're talking to them about uh, the subject of religion and, and Christianity, and we say to them something like, all you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved, which is a prayer that's not in the Bible anywhere. And they respond, tell me how that works. How does a man who died 2,000 years ago solve my problems today? What are you going to say? Or another scenario. Let's say we're talking to someone, and again, they're being kind, we're being kind, and, and um, they say, uh, that you share in the gospel, and, and they say this question, listen, I appreciate what you're trying to do for me, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done in my life. There is no way that God could forgive me of my sins. Maybe some of you feel that way today. What's the answer to that question? Or another scenario, let's say that you're, you're talking to someone, maybe you have this background or come from this background, and, and they're um, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or a Christian scientist and, or something like that, and you're in the middle of a conversation with them, they go, hold on a minute, it sounds like you're trying to convert me. Like, we're on the same team, right? We believe the same things, don't we? What are you going to say? Or final scenario... Maybe this is where you're sitting right now. You're asking this question. 
can I really know God? I mean, really. I'm here, but I have my doubts. Can I really know God? And then the follow-up question is, is God really worth knowing? All of the answers to these scenarios are in the fact that God in Jesus Christ is the glorious God-man. Okay? We're going to be talking about what's called the incarnation today, where God himself came down and took on human body and human nature. Jesus Christ. When we say incarnation, that's what we mean. Now, here's a little warning. I need you guys to hang with me. We're going to talk about some doctrine. I'm going to tell you in a minute why that's important. We're going to talk about some beliefs. We're going to dive into this concept a little bit. If you'll stay with me, you will behold the glory of your salvation in perhaps a way you've never seen it before. But you've got to stay with me. All right? Let's read this text. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18, but we're really just going to focus on, on verses 14, okay? John chapter 1, beginning of verse 14, this is God's Word. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And from the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, as we worship you over your word this morning, we ask for your help. Uh, we ask for understanding. God, we ask that things would be clear, that we would be able through the power of your word and the power of your spirit to behold you as you are. Bring us into that greater understanding. Help me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be acceptable in our sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a big idea this morning. Only in understanding the incarnation, the God-man, God came down, took the form of human man, and remained God. God and man, same time. Okay? Only in understanding the incarnation of Jesus Christ can you grasp the full weight of the gospel. Only in understanding the incarnation of Jesus Christ can you grasp the full weight of the gospel. Uh, that uh, weight, I chose that word intentionally. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod. It means heavy. It means weighty. Okay, Because the gospel is weighty. The gospel deals with a heavy problem. Your sin and the wrath of God that's coming your way. Deal, the gospel gives a heavy solution, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God becoming a man we're going to talk about today, and the gospel demands a heavy response, repentance, faith, and surrender. And as I was uh, preparing this sermon this week, I, I realized I wanted to deal with, with the whole passage, but this is really a two-part sermon. Okay, uh, the, We're going to deal with just the two natures of Christ today. We're just going to be digging in specifically to verse 14. And then next time we're together, uh, we're going to talk about the mission of Christ and the glory of Christ. So today, the two natures of Christ. And then later, we're going to talk about the mission of Christ and the glory of Christ. But, but this is what I want for you today. I under, want you to understand the weight of the incarnation, the God-man. 
I want you to behold the glorious God-man and understand what I hope is your salvation in a way you never have before or maybe come to him in a way that you never have before for the salvation that only a God-man, only a God-man can offer, okay? So we're going to do, th- do three things with the two natures of Christ um, this morning. Uh, we're going to define it. We're going to talk about the dangers of confusing it, and then we'll, find, we'll finish up with why it matters. De- definition, dangers, why it matters. One of the things I want for you as we go through this is one of the things that I, I feel like I struggle with with a lot of Christians, and I've struggled with myself as a believer, is that oftentimes we believe things blindly, and we don't know why we believe them. Today we're going to get some information about that from this passage And then the second thing is, oftentimes if we reject Christ, we reject Him without knowing who we're rejecting. The only real reason to reject Jesus is because He's too good to be true. And you're going to see that in the glorious God-man. All right, so let's define it. What are we talking about? Um, uh, Many people encourage preachers not to talk about doctrine. Doctrine is just a fancy word that means, what do you believe? Okay? Many people say it's not practical. You need to give people some really good advice to just get them through the week. That advice, don't teach doctrine, is terrible advice. Because even if you get them through the week, you might not get them through eternity. Okay? Because the what you believe is so significant. It, it helps you understand what it is that you need to believe. If you don't understand the doctrines of this faith, you may not know Jesus and therefore suffer the eternal punishment in hell forever. It's extremely practical, and then it's also practical in other ways. Think about it like this. In in the early days of Christianity in in Rome, uh, uh, Christians were converted faster than they could be fed to lions. How did that happen? I mean, you would think that the the bonfire starts up real quick, but then once you start feeding people to lions, things are going to die down. That's not how it works. How can someone go to their death many times singing? There must be something that they believe that defines them in such a way that allow them to do that. Doctrine is extremely practical. It's not just empty facts. What we're going to talk about today are specifics about a person. God in the form of Jesus Christ is not an abstraction. He's a person that can be known. And you get a chance to know him today. You're not learning about a rock. You're learning about a man who still lives as a man right now. Okay? Doctrine is practically uh, probably the most practical thing that you can get. Uh, You want a better marriage? It's practical. Look at the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. That's the template. You take the doctrine, you build your life on it. Okay? All right. So today we're talking about two natures of Christ. The Word became flesh in this passage. The Word, again, the eternal Logos, the one who created the world, through whom everything in the world was created, became flesh, took on a human body and a human soul, Okay, took on humanity in and of itself. Here's the doctrine, I mean, here's the definition, a good one from R.C. Sproul. He's a fantastic theologian who's with the Lord now. He says this, The historic Christian understanding of the person of Christ is this. He is one person, one person, who possessed two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. Each nature retains its unique properties, okay? They don't merge or blend. 
God and man, same time, no separation. We're going to dig into that a little more, okay? Each nature retains its unique properties, and the two natures remain distinct, though inseparably united in Christ's person. God put on flesh, God became a human being. Now I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you're reading a book, and it's a fascinating book. And there are parts of the book that just enthrall you. You can't put it down. Maybe, they make it, maybe it makes you weep. Maybe you can't put it down. Maybe you're excited. Maybe it's doing all of those things. And you get to the end of the book, and even though there were individual chapters in the book that floored you, you just don't get it. Something doesn't add up. The, the plot line is mixed up somewhere, and you can't figure out how the whole thing pulls together. And then your friend, who's also reading the book with you, you're describing your problem. They say, hold on a minute, there's a missing chapter. And you get the chapter, and then all of a sudden, the whole thing makes sense. And in fact, the things you love become more beautiful. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God-man, at the same time, is the missing chapter that makes the whole story of the Bible make sense. It brings everything together. We're going to define it biblically. What is the incarnation? God-man. Glorious God-man. Okay? How do we define it? Where do we see it in the Bible? Truly human, truly divine at the same time. Just wait till we get to the why it matters. I'm telling you, hold on, all right? General description, Jesus is God in the flesh and does not lose his divinity when he becomes man. That the eternal God that we read about and we talked about in the beginning of this chapter stepped into time. That God is a spirit, but he took on a real body and a real human soul. He took on human nature, body and soul. Okay? He took on human nature while maintaining his divine nature. And he did all of this without sin. That's why there needed to be a virgin birth. That's a Christmas sermon. We'll get to that. Okay? But that's why he wasn't born into sinful nature, but God himself brought him about in, in Virgin Mary. Okay? Another sermon, we'll get to it later date, all right? But he's truly God, truly man, no sin. Tracking with me? Okay? All right, so let's look at a couple. Uh, let me get one more quote by Sproul, and then we'll get to some scripture, just a few. This is from Sproul again. Thus, according to his divine nature, as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God is omniscient, omnipotent, and everything else that God is. But according to his human nature... Jesus needed to eat food to survive. He grew in knowledge. He experienced sorrow. It's fascinating. Jesus is, whenever he does his greatest miracle, one of his greatest miracles of calming the storm, before he calmed the storm, what was he doing? Sleeping. Why? Because he was exhausted. Why? Because he was a man. He needed to eat. He was hungry when he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. Why was that a struggle? Because he was a man, and he needed to eat. Fascinating, this is the Easter sermon. But Jesus rises from the dead, and he's on the beach with his disciples, and what does he say? Y'all got anything to eat? Why? Because he was a man. Okay? All right, a couple verses. The first one we've already read. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And in verse 14, The Word became flesh made his dwelling among us, and we have seen him. 
God made him known. He was literally here. and You could touch and see him. Okay? Colossians 1.15. Paul writes about Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That he became physical. All right? Hebrews 1, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, um, He is the radiance of the glory of God, listen to this, and the exact imprint of His nature. The exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is His divinity. He's the radiance of God's glory. He is the word that became flesh. The exact imprint of his nature, that Hebrew word behind that exact imprint of his nature, is like a, a wax mold, a hot wax, and you mold it, okay? All right? It looks exactly like whatever you put in it when it dries, okay? Jesus as God. We have here in this passage some of your translations. Mine, the one I'm reading from, the, the, um, the NIV, says the one and only some of you, your translations might say the only Son from the Father. In some of your translations, this is actually the historic way to think about how Jesus came from the Father, as the only begotten from the Father. The only begotten from the Father. And this wording trips some people up sometimes. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Okay? Begot, let me tell you what begotten does not mean. It does not mean that God the Father created Jesus. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. We actually talked about that a few weeks ago. Okay? Here's, here, this doesn't mean that Jesus came out of the Father in some way. Okay? Uh, he always was. God, as mysterious as it is to our small minds, was always one person, one God, three persons. The second person, the Trinity, the Son, always exists. And there, the, what it does not mean was that there was a time when the Son did not exist. doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that by nature and from all eternity, that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is the Son by His nature. Okay? It wasn't a time. That's Jesus as God. Number two, Jesus as human. He slept, like we talked about, was weakened, grew hungry. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we read this about Jesus and his priestly ministry to us, is if we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect had been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. He is 100% man, 100% God at the same time. And that's why whenever you're dealing with something, isn't it nice to have someone that's also dealt with it? Don't we always run to those people? It's, just, it's easier to talk to that person. Yeah, sometimes I'm in a counseling session or something like that, and, and someone will say, I appreciate your help. You just don't know what I'm going through. And they're right. I don't. But Jesus does. He can identify with you personally. You think you have temptations? He never gave in. Not one time to temptation. Okay? He knows that pressure. He, he knows the depression. He wept over Jerusalem when he saw they were war. He knows, what, he knows what it means. That's who he is because he was man. That's what it is. Two natures of Christ. 100% God, 100% man. Same time. Okay? 
all right? The glorious God-man. Now, here's the danger of not understanding the two natures of Christ, okay? Again, this is the mysterious joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus Christ, where the divine, the divine one took on human nature and body and came to dwell with us, the glorious God-man, okay? The two natures of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity are the centerpiece of our salvation, okay? They're the centerpiece of our salvation. And most of the early church, the problems that they had, and I would argue in a minute, just wait till we get there, we're almost there, most of the problems we're having today are because we're not grounded in this reality, all right? Now, the early church had all kind of, all kind of people coming up teaching different things. False teachers, heretics was one of the things that it was called. And they had several church councils that got together that used the Bible to figure out and come up with very clear statements. Oftentimes, when we, when we take the Lord's Supper at King's Church, we'll recite one of the creeds. These creeds were written so that we can know what we believe. Okay, And out of these council meetings came these creeds. In every single one of them that I'm going to mention, the four main ones, the issue at stake was who is Jesus Christ. That was the issue at stake. Same one today. The Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., just a couple hundred years after Jesus died, historically just a blip, a blink of an eye. Okay? The issue was the deity of Christ. Okay? And out of that came the Nicene Creed. The, Con the Council of Constantinople in, in three, uh, 381 A.D., his humanity was what was affirmed, because there were people teaching it wasn't human. The Council of Ephesus in 431 A.D. was the complete deity of Jesus Christ that was defended. Not that he didn't, he didn't come in and out of his humanity and deity. That was what some people were teaching at the time. And then in the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the two natures of Christ were again defended. And here's the thing I want you to understand. The main thing that the devil wants for you is to be confused over who Jesus is. And he's been doing it to the church for thousands of years, not just in this moment. All, almost all of the non-Christian cults come out of the reality of getting the two natures of Christ wrong. Okay? This is how it's so dangerous. All right? Now, how do you tell a counterfeit? We talked about this last week. By studying the original. That's how you know a counterfeit, by studying the original. Jehovah's Witnesses, um, they teach that Jesus is God, but not the Son of God, that He was created. They focus on His humanity and not His divinity. Hear me, hear me clearly. I'm saying this in love. This is a religion that will not save. It will not save, and I'm about to tell you why. Mormons believe that Jesus was the first spirit to be born and that Jesus and Satan are brothers and a lot of other, honestly, quite strange things. Okay? I'm saying this in love. This is a religion that will not save. And I'm about to tell you why. Christian scientists focus on Jesus' divinity but deny his humanity. Okay? Again, this is a religion that will not save your soul from hell. Okay? The main points about the two natures of Christ that you need to understand is that God is God and man, and this is from the Council of Chalcedon. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to talk about the main things that were the problems that they and us are dealing with. The two natures of Christ are without confusion. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ is not what you get when you mix blue and green together, or blue and yellow together and end up with green. That's not what happens. They don't mix. Okay? Without confusion. Secondly, uh, without change. In assuming human flesh, the Logos, the eternal word, God, did not cease to be what he had always been. The incarnation affected no substantial chain in the divine son. All right? Now, please, please stay with me. I'm about to tell you why all this matters. Okay? In other words, in the Bible, Lot's wife looked back and she became salt. She changed into something else. But when a man becomes a father, his manhood doesn't leave him. Does that make sense? Okay? So without change... Without the next one, number number uh, three, without divisions, that the two natures of Christ do not represent a split in the divine person. That Jesus is fifty percent man and fifty percent God. He's hundred percent man and hundred percent God. Same time, one person, the glorious God Man. Okay, last one, without separation, the union of the human and the divine in the person of Jesus Christ is real, is a real organic union, okay? A real partnership. 100% God, 100% man, together united, without separation. I'll just read those again for you, and then we'll move on, okay? Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And again, this is the language from one of those councils, Council of Chalcedon, okay? Now, so what? It's a lot of theological stuff, right? I feel like I was in Sunday school or seminary this morning. Why does it matter? I think our biggest problem, if you're a believer in Christ, um, is that oftentimes we believe in Christ blindly. We don't understand it, but we believe it. Do you have to believe in the two natures of Jesus Christ to be saved from hell? Do you need to believe in the two natures of Jesus Christ to be saved from hell? Yes. Absolutely. Let me ask you a few more questions. Do you struggle with peace, joy, anxiety, depression? Do you struggle with security over whether or not you're a real Christian or not? What's going to happen to you when you die? Do you struggle to believe that God can love you because of what you've done? Do you really believe that you can know God and that He's worth knowing? Only in understanding the incarnation of Jesus Christ can you understand the full weight of the gospel. This is not a dusty lull doctrine. In Romans chapter 5, three verses, okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We got the sin nature from Adam. He infected all of the human race with death and disease. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transpass, for if many died through the one man's trespasses, how much more have the grace of God by the free gift, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ abounded for many. The solution, problem, one man's sin. Solution, one man's righteousness in death. Verse 17. For if... 
For because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. One man, one man. Got it? Okay. Why? Why did Jesus... This is one of my favorite questions to ask people who are struggling with Christianity. Why did Jesus have to be God and man to save you from your sin? You ready? Number one, because God demands sin, demands blood for sin. You ever wondered why in Christianity we sing about blood so much? It's because that the blood is the essence of life. And God demanded blood to pay for sin. Okay? But will any sacrifice do? What kind of blood was needed? There needed to be, number one, a human sacrifice. We needed a sacrifice that was an equal payment. The lambs and goats and bulls, that was just a delay game. Okay? We needed an equal sacrifice. We needed someone who was human. That's why he had to come be a human being. Right? The blood of bulls and goats won't cut it. Had to have a human sacrifice. It also needed to be a pure sacrifice. That's why in Exodus it had to be a lamb without blemish. It had to be pure. Jesus had to be sinless and perfect. There must, and then this final thing, listen to me, you had to have a man. You had to have a man's sacrifice to pay for your sin. You had to have a perfect sacrifice so that it was worthy to pay for your guilt and they can make you clean. But here's the problem. Assume I'm perfect and clean, which is a really big assumption, I know, right? I could only die for one of you. He had to be God so that he could die for all of us. And this brings us to the question, how valuable is God blood? How valuable is God blood? And the answer is infinite. There is no measure to the value that God blood has. It can pay for everything. It is the most precious commodity in the history of the world. And it is the necessary thing that you and I need for salvation. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul is encouraging these elders to take care of the church. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which was obtained with his own blood. You can come into the presence of God because the God-man bled and gave himself as a sacrifice. God is no longer hostile to you if you're covered in the blood of the God-man. Infinite value. Because the glorious God-man shed his blood. He was the right kind of sacrifice, and because he was God, it can spread to all the world for those who receive him. And if you receive the covering of his blood by faith, you will be saved. Only in understanding the incarnation of Jesus Christ can you grasp the full weight of the gospel. Do you have any hope? You know, for many of us, the world looks kind of bleak these days. Are you depressed? I want you to know something. The blood of the God-man is on you if you've received him there is nothing that can touch you 
and the hope of all eternity is yours forever. Why? Because the God-man bled. What are you worried about? The God-man bled for you. Do you want to have peace in difficult circumstances? Do you want to sing whenever you're being fed to the lions? Know this. God bled for you. Do you long to be forgiven? Struggle legitimately, I have, with the fact that you've done something too disgusting for God to forgive you. May I offer you this encouragement, even though it doesn't sound encouraging. Quit being so arrogant to think that you can out-sin God's blood. It's not possible. It's so valuable, it's so precious, it's so all-encompassing that there's nothing that you can do that it can't cover. Do you want to know God? Do you think that's possible? It is, and here's why. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Word the Logos, the one through everything was created, the one who is the light and the life of man. He became a man, and he was sacrificed on the cross for you. The glorious God-man bled, and his blood is enough. Now, if, you've ever know, come, if you haven't come to know him, let me read you verse 12. Some of you, this might be your story today. This is what the Word of God says, not what Matt says, it's what the Word of God says. Yet to all who receive Him, to those who believe in His name, the God-man, Jesus Christ, He gave the right to become children of God. That can be your destiny. Belief, faith, trust, and repentance. For others of you, you need to rest again in the God-blood. Father in heaven, we pray that as we close our service of worship today, that you would help us in this moment as we sing, but also throughout the rest of this week in our lives, to behold the God-man and be saved. And to behold the God-man and live. Grant us that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.